0: When I was in my 20s, I was inspired by a book, probably by many of you, many of you have been inspired by the same book by Hermann Hesse Siddhartha. And there were so many things in the book that touched my heart. I don't remember all the details, but the one thing that remains with me is the part about the river. The ever-flowing, always-moving, always-changing river that the Buddha sat by, the the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be sat by and listened to. And from there, there were many teachings, many understandings that came to his mind, to his heart. Listening deeply to that as a teaching in impermanence, that uh, water, organic flowing material, energy system of currents below, the evanescent bubbles on the top kind of constantly appearing and disappearing, the changes in temperature caused by the innumerable conditions of the weather patterns. And just as easily as I could open my heart to the naturalness of this flowing river meeting the ocean, evaporating, melting, Uh, snow recycling back to earth and then in this endless process over and over and over again through the seasons, through the world cycles, I could easily open my heart to the nature of a similar process of this body, of this mind, of this life, this river of life manifesting in this world known as in this life Kamala. So in recent years, I've been tuning into the immensity of that and the infinity of all of that, that kind of onward movingness of the process of human life, the endless cycle, the repetitive, the repeated, continual birth, life, death, rebirth, on and on and on and on. This is called samsara. One definition of samsara is to perpetually wander through the states of existence. So this is, um, you know, pretty disgusting to me. <laughs> this on and on and on and onness. When will it end? How, how do we come to a place in our lives where we feel really totally fulfilled as human beings? Is it just going through this over and over and over again? I remember one time when I I just first came into contact with this Manindraji, one of my teachers, was staying at my home. And I just remember him standing in the hallway back there. And he was um, in his room, in, in the back room, and he was walking towards the bathroom And I said, Oh, you're going to bed now, Menindraji? And he says, Oh, yes. And he said, I have to brush my teeth again. It happens again and again and again. How many times will I have to brush my teeth? And I thought, Wow, he's really going on and on about brushing his teeth, you know. And he said, From time immemorial, I've been brushing my teeth, I think, you know, either with twigs or with toothbrush. Uh, Because in Burma, you know, they do it with these twigs, sometimes clean their teeth. So I I thought, wow. He says, this is Sankara dukkha. This is just on and on and on, how we have to keep doing this. When will this end? So it just, first, it just brought up the question for the first time in my life. I was like in my early 30s or late 20s then. And so I started to reflect on that as time went by in my practice. And the reflection has served me to provide a kind of spiritual urgency more and more to really complete the Buddhist teaching and to fulfill my life truly as a human being on this earth and in these planes of existence over and over again, to really understand and to... uh, be liberated. So the Buddha said there is no discoverable beginning, just this changing nature at every level. And so this is what we're learning here at different levels depending on conditions. Every level of life, the conceptual level of the changing patterns of the seasons, um, the psychological levels of things we learn deeper and deeper in our psyche and what happens and what we come to connect with and let go of. And the moment-to-moment level. This is what the Buddha was teaching us to look at, to see the moment-to-moment level of experience. More on that later. So in the ancient suttas, in the words of the Buddha, he gives us a sense of the infinity, and the immensity of time, of this cycle of birth and life and death, over and over again. One time, a Brahman came to the Buddha and asked him, how many eons have elapsed and gone by? In terms of this wander- wandering in this cycle of samsara, he was asking, is it possible to give a simile? So in Buddhist terms... An eon is an immeasurably long period of time. That's how it's... Gen- Every time I look it up on Google, it's always about immeasurably long period of time. But there are other places that I saw a kind of a more precise uh, description of it. In Buddhist cosmology, an eon means a kalpa. And a kalpa is 4.32 billion years. So there's, you know... Can we even measure that? It's just a lot, you know, more than I can imagine. In astronomy, an eon is one thousand million years. So it's many world cycles, we can say. So I'd like to read to you uh, some of the words of the Buddha in answering this question. Is it possible, Brahman? The Blessed One said. It is possible, Brahman, the blessed one said, to consider this. Consider the grains of sand between the point where the river Ganges originates and the point where it enters the great ocean. The eons that have elapsed and gone by are even more numerous than that, than these grains of sand. It is not easy to count them and say that they are so many eons, so many hundreds, or thousands, or hundreds of thousands of eons. For what reason? Because, Brahman, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to be liberated from them. I think that's the Buddha's words meaning to say, isn't it enough that we should be liberated from them now? On one occasion, while dwelling at Savati, the Blessed One said, Bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Whenever you see anyone in misfortune, in misery, whenever you see anyone happy and fortunate, you can conclude We, too, have experienced the same thing in this long course, over and over again. For what reason? Because, bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. Isn't it enough to be liberated from them? It is not easy, bhikkhus, to find a being who in this long course has not previously been your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. For what reason? Because bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to be liberated from them. So the fluctuations of just one life, birth, the the stages of infancy, childhood, adulthood, aging, sickness, health, dying and death, All the happiness and sorrow, all the gain and loss slips through our fingers like water gathered in our hands from this river of life and passing away. When I was in my 20s, the end of the river was not something I thought about often. I was too busy raising children, being in kind of survival mode and uh, fulfilling whatever purpose I could ascertain my life had at that moment, at that time. But even so, I did have a lot of interest at a young age and a beginning sense of urgency about life, finding out the true meaning of life, realizing the deeper meaning of life. Now at this age most of my life is behind me, probably. I'm 65 now and there's a natural organic way of feeling an urgency to use my life, the rest of it, as wisely as I can. A natural reflection on death and the preciousness of this human birth, of life, And as I delve into the Dharma more profoundly, that is by practicing it, keeping the truth of impermanence in the forefront of my mind each and every day. So not so long ago, I did a personal retreat in Lumbini, which is the birthplace of the Buddha, located in what is now Nepal. Usually, I don't bring any reading material in into my retreat. But I did bring some words of advice from uh, a wonderful Tibetan master that I'm very inspired by, Dilgo Kinse Rinpoche. And uh, I read what he wrote, just something short. It inspired me every day. So I'd just like to read this to you. It's just about that sense of urgency and the use of our precious human life. So he says, ask yourself how many of the billions of inhabitants of this planet have any idea of how rare it is to have been born as a human being? How many of those who understand the rarity of human birth ever think of using that chance to practice the Dharma? How many of those who think of practice actually do? How many of those who start continue? How many of those who continue attain ultimate realization? Indeed, those who attain ultimate realization, compared to those who do not, are as few as the stars you can see at daybreak. As long as you fail to realize the true value of your human existence, you will just fritter your life away in futile activity and distraction. When life comes all too soon to its inevitable end, you will not have achieved anything worthwhile at all. But once you really see the unique opportunity that human life can bring, you will definitely direct all your energy into reaping its true worth by putting the Dharma into practice. Just as every single thing is always moving inexorably closer to its ultimate dissolution, so also your own life, like a burning butter lamp, will soon be consumed. It would be foolish to think you can first finish all your work and retire to spend the later stages of your life practicing the Dharma. Can you be certain you will live that long? Does death not strike the young as well as the old? No matter what you are doing, therefore, remember death and keep your mind focused on the Dharma. So this is what I read every morning and every night before I went to bed, inspiring me to use my time there wisely, whatever happened. Not that I had to sit and walk and sit and walk all the time, but there were times that I needed to go out into the garden and maybe to see the monkey climbing in the tree or, or pick a fruit that I ate, you know, or to get a cup of tea. Or maybe there were times I felt like sitting longer and times I didn't. I would stay in my room when the Dharma talk was given because I couldn't hear one more word. So I had to do all those things that just kept a balance in my life. Uh, in my life there. So I'm not saying that using my life in my dharma practice means I had to follow the schedule and uh, do everything to be a good yogi. You know, that a good yogi is something I determine after having practiced this long. It's nothing somebody can put upon me. So the Pali word for impermanence is anicca. The subtleties of it include the arising the becoming different, becoming otherwise, disappearing, appearing, never staying the same, subject to change. These are all the various ways that that word, Anicca, a Pali word, is described in English. So, in a bigger way, it's seen as a flowing onness of life, the flowing onness of all of life. Like a beginningless, endless river, flowing and changing, evaporating, recycling, over and over again. So, of course, here in New England, which is why I do love to come here, even though it's a you know, colder weather. Sometimes I call home, by the way, and I say, uh, it's really warm here. And they ask me, well, what, what does that mean? I say, it's 54 degrees. And my friends at home say, oh, man, that's really cold, you know. When we say it's 54 at home, we call each other and say, don't forget to wear your sweater. It's 54 degrees. Sometimes I when people ask me about the weather, I say, I don't want to tell you when they ask me in New England because it sounds ridiculous, um, unbelievable. So we see change all around us, which is but well, I love to come here the seasons I love them the movement of snow appearing in winter appearing from many different from many different conditions of course falling and then hardening into ice and melting again so that spring can arise with all its blossoms and the bursting of the leaves from the trees and then summer can come And then there's fall. And then it goes into winter again. And it's this endless, endless cycle happening because of innumerable conditions, more than we can imagine. And all those innumerable conditions are also impermanent. There's this immensity and profound depth of it all, really. We have sometimes no idea how much teaching is around us. At Savati, the Buddha said again to the bhikkhus, form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, meaning intentions, consciousness, all are impermanent. The causes and conditions for the arising of all of these individually are also impermanent. As form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness is also impermanent. And everything it touches is impermanent. Where could there be anything that's permanent? Do we get entranced by the beauty of nature? by the forms of nature and not see more deeply than that? Do we let deeper, possibly deeper teachings go by us, slide by us unconsciously? I came across a poem that really, that speaks to this so directly by Kenneth Rexroth. And the poem is called Another Spring, very apt for our time now. I shortened it a bit just for time's sake, but the main points are there. So another spring. The seasons revolve and the years change with no assistance or supervision. The moon, without taking thought, moves in its cycle, full crescent and full again. The white moon enters the heart of the river. The air is drugged, with azalea blossoms, deep in the night a pine cone falls, a campfire dies out in the empty mountains, the sharp stars flicker in the tremulous branches, but here we lie entranced by the starlit water, and moments that we think should last forever slide unconsciously by us like water. We're so entranced by things, we don't see the deeper meaning sometimes. We're so attached to how we think things should be, we don't see the deeper meaning sometimes. We may say it, each of us, in different ways, but we come to this practice really to understand the nature of life more deeply don't we? I mean, I know we come because maybe we want more peace, more ease of well-being in our lives. And we do find that. But we do, in, in the same process, we do come to be more in alignment with the truth of life. That's what gives us the most, really the most security. That we feel that we're in alignment with the truth of how things are that we're not fighting it, we're not resisting it, we're not trying to make it otherwise, we're not clinging to the past of how it was or the future of our plans to how we think it should be. But what we come to understand is the nature of life, how it is, and to be in alignment with that. Every single thing that comes from within us, that comes out so we could view it, is teaching us this lesson to experience in a way that liberates our mind and our heart from the ignorance and delusion, delusion that we kind of um, get identified with we don't see is kind of pushing and pulling our life around so we practice deeply to understand the causes of suffering on a conceptual level, on the level of just the grossness of our life, and on deeper levels, so that they can be relinquished easily. We are learning that to cling to what changes and that will not last forever brings constant pain. Things and relationships and ways that we thought <clears throat> things were and should continue to be they're all changing i'm not free of that i i i'm hurt by that every single day but there's some learning there that helps me to be more in alignment with the truth of how things are we're learning that to try to control what is constantly changing is painful i've heard uh, many times Joseph say, as Joseph Goldstein, as you have heard, say it's like holding on to a rope that's constantly being pulled from our hands. We, get, we just get rope burn. It's so painful. It's hot. It's burning. It's searing. It's wounding. So it only brings confusion and pain. We know it over and over again. What we're looking for is what is stable and unchanging in this changing reality. But we can't find it. But we can find the truth. The truth that is really unchanging. The truth of the changing nature of life. The truth of how if we hang on, it brings pain. And the truth of how it really is all empty of self. All of those kind of come together. We learn that. So the Buddha's teaching on Anicca is experientially profound when when we open to really experiencing it. It's something that the Buddha pointed to as highly important because it helps us understand the possibility of really being free. He said that better a single day of life perceiving how things rise and fall than to live out a century yet not perceiving their rise and fall, their appearing and disappearing. So this practice that we're doing, this practice of vipassana, is aimed towards this experiential understanding it's not about just believing something and taking it on somebody else's word. It's a matter of really knowing it for ourselves, going through the pain of it. It's not, it's not possible to go around it and to kind of have it land to us in our hands. Uh, Manindra used to say to me, the mango doesn't just fall from the tree in your hands. You know, it—it's you need to water it, to fertilize the tree, to understand, to see through it, go through all its changes, to see it go through dry seasons and seasons when it rains too much so the blossoms don't form and the mangoes don't come as abundantly. And there's all a lot of pain you and change you see through in your own life. Actually, Vipassana means seeing or understanding in various profound ways. These various ways are seeing deeply and profoundly what happens in this fluctuating nature of the body and the mind. So as we've seen in the Buddha's teaching of bringing the attention to these four foundations of mindfulness over and over again, bringing attention to the body, bringing attention to feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings, bringing attention to the mind and to all the mental states, to all the dhammas. And really, this comprises everything that we are as human beings. So bringing attention to whatever is predominant, not just on a conceptual level of, yes, we know this as the leg, but do we know deeply what's happening in this body, in this form of this fluctuating earth element, water element, fire element, air element, this kind of elemental experience of the body, not as me and mine as who and who I am, not owning it or naming it or identifying with it as person or Kamala or woman, but seeing it on a completely different level, kind of this intimate, pixelated view, moment-to-moment view, it takes a really calm mind to see that. So being with the breath helps, and doing forms of Samatha or concentration really help. So it's not just seeing the nature around us but experiencing the nature within us, the incessant, always morphing, dissolving, transient nature seen in this body, in mind, in all its various ways. It's so pivotal because it brings about the insight into dukkha. The insight into anicca is said to bring about the insight into dukkha, that first noble truth. Dukkha means that there's no ultimate or lasting permanent satisfaction in any form, in any feeling, in any perception or memory, in any future planning, in any moment of intention, in any knowing, in consciousness. There is nothing that we can hold on to In any of those, it's going to give permanent, lasting satisfaction. Easy to say, but really challenging to realize. Just because I can say it doesn't mean it can be realized with everything. One of the first moments of this Anicca understanding came into view, and it was quite an ordinary Moment. It started out with quite ordinary, as it might have for you when you might have realized this anicca in, on a deeper level for yourself. So it occurred in connection with nature, as it usually does for me. There's, there's sort of a, in my experience in the Dharma, there's been a lot more understanding that's come in connection with nature sometimes than, than sitting. and and being still and quiet, but more in the continuity of life as I've moved through life, in retreat also. So I was in my early 30s taking part in... It was just a nine-day course where I lived on Maui. I had organized a course for Manindraji. It was one of his first times on Maui, and um, one of my dear Dharma friends was here being the cook, and we were... uh, I was doing walking meditation. It was on this gravel road on uh, going into this place, which is was a guava farm originally. And the process of practice was taking its un- unfolding, very natural course. Uh, there was this very natural moment-to-moment sequence happening of just lifting, moving, placing not even saying the words anymore, just feeling that, being kind of really connected to the the moving nature of, of the body. And just the seeing, hearing, smelling, feeling the wind on the face, all of the various things that were happening. Also, the mind would think about something and how it would be flitting through and just noticing that. There's an uneasiness about it during that time. It was not like a trying to do anything. It was just uh, mindfulness being effortless because of previous moments of mindfulness being uh, practiced. So all around there were these tall, high, high, hibiscus bushes. Hibiscus, as many of you may know, is very big flowers. And maybe you don't know that usually they die within a day. They they blossom and they fall all within a day, day's time. So I was doing the walking and uh, seeing the hibiscus on the left when walking that way and on the right when walking the other way. And all of a sudden, the eye, my eye caught view of a hibiscus that was, one hibiscus was bloomed and the next one was folding and dying and falling. And then caught view of the rustling of the leaves in the trees, in the hibiscus bushes, quite tall, almost like trees. And the rustling, seeing the rustling, the, the constant movement. And then noticing all of that with seeing, just seeing, seeing, on the movement of the mind in seeing, in the appearing or rising of seeing in the mind, and the disappearing of the seeing. And so the hibiscus was gone, and now just the seeing. So seeing the outer experience of nature arising and passing away, the inner experience of the mind, of the knowing of it also arising and passing away. And so there was this incessant change and this uncontrollable I couldn't stop it. It couldn't make it happen, nor could I make it stop. And it brought a lot of fear to the mind. That was the initial impact of this moment-to-moment view. This appearing and disappearing at that level. Seeing the evanescence of it all, at a level I'd never seen before. Now it's quite ordinary, and probably for many of you, quite ordinary to see that. But it was a shock to my system at that time. And so there was this new understanding that all I thought that I could hold on to was so undependable. And there was this losing of that, this great loss of everything that was dependable was now undependable. This thinking that there could be this constancy somewhere in my life, but there wasn't anywhere in that moment. You know, I just saw it as ubiquitous in everything out there, and everything in the mind, in here, moving, everything in the body, moving. So I used to become engrossed with the beauty of nature, But it became all of a sudden very disgusting, to me, you know, and disenchanting. Just the first moment of that happening was pretty scary. That, you know, I just wanted to turn away, and run away, and I did. And I ran to Manindraji, and at that time, he was um, in where he was in his room, one of the back rooms of this place, and I knocked on the door. And I said, I have to see you. I have to see you. And I was crying. And so he was sitting back in his chair, and I walked in the door. He said, come in. I walked in the door. And I said, everything's disappearing. It's not what I thought it would be. And I try to hold on, and it just disappears. Hold on to something in the mind, even. It just goes away. And I was crying and crying, and Manindraji was smiling, <laughs> smiling. He was so happy, you know, that this moment had come. And he could have said, you know, he said different things at different times. Sometimes I get it all mixed up. I've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> he could have said something like that. But he, he said to me, let go, let go, let go, let go. That's all he could say. Don't hold on to anything. Because you can't. you know. And he was just so... He just leaned back in his chair and was smiling. It's about all he said. Just let go, let go, let go. With that feeling of, you know, I've been waiting for this. I've been teaching you for such a long time. You finally have arrived at this moment. Oh, just let go. Let go, let go, let go. So anicca Sankara, you know, sometimes we chant that. Impermanent, alas, are all formations, is how the Buddha translated it. Impermanent, alas, are all formations, everything that we can possibly experience outwardly and inwardly. Nothing can give lasting satisfaction if we cling to it Uh, that's how we suffer. This is what we're being given as lessons over and over again uh, in our practice here with everything we do. Living in alignment with the truth gives us peace and it's a kind of peace that can be with us in its changing experience. But in a way, that's lasting. That understanding, that knowledge, is dependable. That's reliable. The characteristic of dukkha, this is the word we use in in Pali to talk about suffering. But there was one monk that... Um, Steve, my husband, um, taught him this, this way of understanding Dukkha. It's the oppression by the incessant origination and dissolution of everything, of all those five heaps of experience that we are as human beings. Form, perception, feeling, intentions, consciousness... It's not to say that there is no happiness. Of course there is happiness. We experience it, you know, every day each one of us when sunshine comes. We feel the warmth of the weather when it's, you know, 54 degrees. Or uh, we hear the birds or the woodpecker. Have you heard the woodpecker? Yeah. That makes me smile. And of course it's there is happiness there, but it doesn't last does it? I was standing out there the other day, coming up from a walk yesterday when it was a little warm, and heard knock, 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 the woodpecker. And then, you know, I was waiting for it. And I was noticing when I was waiting, I was looking for it again. I was suffering, like, it's not coming up again, (laughs) instead of like, oh, this is a happy moment, it, you know, I'm, I can appreciate the happy moment that was passing by. I said, come on, come on, <laughs> peck again for me. But it's, it's not lasting. Of course we experience happiness. It doesn't mean that we don't. But even that is fleeting. It's said that uh, even dukkha is in pleasant experience <laughs> It's inherent in pleasant experience because pleasant experience does not last. So it's fleeting. Everything is fleeting. But because of this, we appreciate life much more. The preciousness of those fleeting moments of happiness, the vulnerability of life, gives us that. Hopefully, as dhamma it gives us that some vega that spiritual urgency, to keep on in our path and to really touch what's reliable, what can be dependable, that alignment with things as they really are, with the truth of life. So as we keep going in our practice, we understand more clearly this anicca, which opens to dukkha. The unsatisfactoriness that nothing in this changing conditioned world can give lasting satisfaction. Things, people, it's all changing. So what is ceaselessly transient is also by nature uncontrollable. Many conditions coming together to create a moment, an event of experience. So we experience, in one moment, the body and see deeply into its changing elemental nature. Feeling the heat or the coolness of the body, the hardness or the softness of the body. That's fire element and then earth element. Feeling vibrational formations in the body, that's air element. Or tension is also air element, tension in the body. It's like air filling up a balloon, and then it becomes tense and upright. Or we feel the the heaviness of the water element, or the flowingness, the stickiness even, of water element. So this is what we're led to see in the body. Physical sensations in this way appearing and then disappearing. Disappearing. Feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Perception, like memories, come and go, come and go. They're like water. They're like mirages that are on kind of a, a flowing, but still you can see the reflection in a river. Perception, memories. Intention, those volitional formations that come up that say, I'm going to do this today but, or in the next hour intention comes and goes but it's not really in our control in our complete control all the time we don't always carry out those volitional formations consciousness, the knowing of whatever is happening this is usually the last place the ego hangs on to, what we call the ego in today's psychology. Thinking that that is always and forever eternal. But with deep vipassana insight, we see even consciousness arises and passes away. It's also not permanent. What's uncontrollable? We cannot call me or mine or I. We see that in our practice, or to say it more wisely, wisdom sees that in the practice. So mindfulness begins to notice these experiences from a pixelated view, a moment-to-moment noticing, each one arising, dissolving. Delusion cobbles up these heaps together and makes something out of them. You can call ego a delusion, cobbling up a sense of self with what is seen, what is heard, what is tasted, what is touched, a memory, a plan or intention for the future, a knowing, this is me, this is mine. So what we see through our practice that nothing is solid, it's really coreless and empty where is a self? Where is there any eternal being in any of that that we can call me, mine, that is solid? So the not-self characteristic arises from all of this previous understanding of anicca, of dukkha. And sometimes one of those arises in and of itself. We, the mind understands that. So at Savati, Savati, the, the bhikkhus were spoken to again by the Buddha. Form is impermanent. The cause and condition for the arising of form is also impermanent. As form has originated from what is impermanent, how could it be permanent? Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent the cause and condition for the arising of consciousness is also impermanent. As consciousness has originated from what is impermanent, how could it be permanent? The Buddha gave this particular teaching 159 times in different ways in the Kanda Samyutta. That's how just how important it was to repeat this over and over and over again to those, even to those bhikkhus who weren't completely enlightened, still had to learn this, understand this deeply. Just as all these conditions are arising and passing away, each one empty of any solidity at the core because there is no core each one empty of a sense of a self. Everything in this way, in and of itself or in combination with anything else. So on a relative, relational, consensual level, yes, there is a sense of self. We have to have this sense of self because we have to relate to one another. It's useful. It's a necessary concept. But when we see deeply, we see that there is not really any core to any part of what we think is self. This is the investigation that we're doing here as yogis together. On an absolute, ultimate level, it's just these experiences arising, appearing, falling away, disappearing over and over and over again, isn't it true? We can't argue with that when we see what's really happening at this level. At first it can be scary, but later it's a relief when we know we're living at some level or in some part or for the most part in alignment with the truth of how things are. One both respects the relative and understands it from an absolute level. In the Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha said, Rahula, that was his son, develop meditation on the perception of impermanence. For when you develop perception on impermanence, the conceit, I am, will be abandoned So deeply understanding Anicca is the beginning point, or one of the beginning points, of truly realizing the Four Noble Truths and the surety of the complete extinction of suffering. It brings us to a place of genuine refuge because we start to live in that alignment in the truth instead of resisting it or wanting it to be otherwise. An interview with our teachers, an interview with our teachers, there would be questions about mindfulness, of experiencing. When does this arise? (laughs) Have you noticed how it changes? How does it change? Has there been a noticing of how it dissolves? It's what I appreciate understanding, um, practice in a different way, kind of the wisdom of it intellectually. But it it really can't happen in a genuine way without seeing it at a very basic level. So I, as much as it was difficult to live through the practice with my teachers in the Mahasi tradition, it was so necessary to understand experientially what was going on. So you would have to describe the the arising of anything that, that you was a, a primary object of meditation or a secondary object of meditation. Primary was usually always a breath, and secondary was whatever was arising that was predominant in your experience. And so one time I was noticing dizziness and feeling dizzy, which is kind, can be a part of practice, feeling dizzy because you're just seeing the passing away of things all the time. And so he said, do you see it actually pass away? Uh, And I said, no, I don't. And he said, "Uh, do you see it when it arises? I said, no, I don't. He said, unless you can see those things, don't come back for an interview. And He said, only come back when you know. So it was like, oh gosh, I really have to practice. So I, I was in Australia at that time, and I was I, I was practicing. It, it was it was the hell realm of practice for me, and it was like they were constructing in another room. You know, I was with these wonderful Aussie yogis who could stand all the cold, and I had ten wool blankets on me, and um, it it was really hard, very very hard for me, and so. I said okay. I said I had already decided to leave two times, but the teacher said no, you have to stay. So I said okay. I'm going to really see. I'm going to really see the arising of this and the changing of it and the falling of it. And so I I really practiced to see that. And when I could describe it, then I told the manager I'm ready for an interview. I had to kind of bypass two or three interviews. We're being interviewed every day then. So when I could really describe it, all of a sudden the dizziness went away, you know because I could really see the ending of the experience, and I wasn't lost in it, the kind of the coming and going of everything. So knowing the bare experience of it, um, in the body, in the mind, very important. listening to the flow of the river of change over and over again through the years of life, daily life at home, very important, than coming to practice when I could. And because practicing in daily life didn't end the, the experience, I saw it at, of course, a more general level, not as deep a level, but just carrying the thread of it coming into uh, practice. There was more of a seamlessness of it, And then being an intensive practice again and re-experiencing over and over again those things. Upandita made us re-experience things, so we really knew it. It wasn't that just experience once, you know, anicca or dukkha, not just understand it thoroughly with every single one of those heaps of experience, with the body, with perception, with feeling, with consciousness, with volitional experience. Over and over again, you just had to be in the soup of it. Up and down, up and down the process of insight. When um, thinking came, you know, you just had to be with it, not get caught in it, but not feed it, not let it go on and on and on. Even if it was a Dhamma thought, I remember coming to him one time and saying, Oh, now I understand something. I un- I see how the mind has weather patterns just like out here. It's in the mind as well. Or how there's uh, the kind of elemental nature of earth, air, fire, and water can be seen in the mind. And before I could go on, I heard the inter- interpreter say, Stop! And I, so... Then the the teacher said, Upandita said, if you continue this way, you will go backwards. So it really had to stop even going through so many Dhamma thoughts. There are some retreats that need to be that way. But sometimes you just have to stop. As Carlos Castaneda said, whenever the internal dialogue stops, the extraordinary facets of ourselves surface as though they had been kept heavily guarded by our words. You know, it forms kind of a shield around them, around the truth. So Manindra used to say, it's the law. This is how things are. You have to trust it. It's a naturalness of whatever is coming up needs to be with. The mind needs to be with just that, Not any other thing, not how you think it should be, but just this. He used to use the word adimoka, having that deep confidence in accepting the way things are. However it's appearing, it could be a meltdown, you know, because it stops the world and we see things as they are. It could be a blissful moment that we don't hang on to. Surrender to the law, he would say. The Buddha would say, let there be nothing behind you. Leave the future to one side and grasp not what remains in the middle. That present moment, even that doesn't last, of course. That's what shows us the way. So we have to stop looking for solid ground. Get used to how it is. Get used to that feeling of vulnerability. Those feelings of We can't be who we used to be. It's going to all show up, the feelings of shame and weakness and helplessness and hopelessness. And we can't do it and we compare and the endless habitual thoughts we're tired of. We really finally have to get tired and weary and disgusted of the whole thing before we drop to another level. It's how it is. So the degree of happiness or pain we experience is so related to how well or not so well we accept these transitions in our practice. There's no other way. So we learn to stop living in the way we've been living before. But it takes something painful for us to see it sometimes. We begin to use our life more skillfully when we live in alignment with how things are, to use our speech and behavior, open our minds and hearts to the defilements that are showing themselves so clearly and saying, take a look. That's what this unfolding is for. It's saying, take a look. Can you be with this? So that we turn towards something deeper, we don't hang on to the ways that we used to do in order to overcome it but we just really face it this is the preciousness of our human life so this is what our life is for this um i came across these the ways that the buddha talked about this endlessness of everything because in recent years it's just coming to a deeper meaning of spiritual urgency for me getting older and you know when will when will it all end not just because of death but when will the suffering of what we all carry as human beings end when can it end here in my own heart so i'd like to describe a moment a precise moment of realization characterized by the insight into a Nietzsche by a nun. This was um, a nun called Mitakali. Uh, she became enlightened during the time of the Buddha. And this is um, from Susan Murcott's book, The First Buddhist Woman, where she uh, kind of had her own interpretation and translation of some of the poems of the nuns during that time, during their enlightenment. From the Teragata. This nun, Mitakali, was reputed to be angry, difficult, and self-centered. She heard how to practice through Satipatthana. She changed, and she eventually became an arahant. So here's her. Enlightenment poem. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then, as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before the body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. The mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching had been done. So let's sit for a moment, let those words dissolve.